Welcome, all Whovians. My name is Brianna, and I'm going to take you through the vortex on this companion to classic Doctor Who. Today, we get to explore the Keys of Marinus. This is perhaps the most ambitious of the first season serials, and it is by far the weakest story of the first season. That said, it's still a fun ride, and I'm really excited to talk about it. The Keys of Marinus was written by Terry Nation, who also wrote The Daleks. It was directed by John Gorey, produced by Verity Lambert, and it ran from April 11th of 1964 to May 16th of 1964. The Keys of Marinus is essentially Doctor Who does a quest story. This one's a little difficult to talk about in the typical format that I have for this podcast because it's very episodic. Essentially, we have one big overarching structure, and then each individual episode has its own little story that it is telling within this larger structure. Because of that, I'll be setting up the context of the entire quest with episode one and discussing um, that episode in a little bit of detail. And then I'm going to be doing the commentary summary of each episode and the discussion of the episode back to back, as opposed to going through the entirety of the serial and then discussing it afterwards because it makes more sense to do it episode by episode because these are all slightly different stories. The Keys of Marinus opens up with the TARDIS landing on this planet that appears to have a vast ocean and then a temple. This is a very impressive little model and by impressive I mean it is hilarious I haven't talked very much about the model work in this season, but really, the model work in the first Doctor Error in general, it's so cute, guys. You can so tell that they, they just made these beautiful little models and they made this little itty bitty TARDIS to put in the model so they could film it and it's adorable. My favorite part of the model work in this episode are these submarines which we see in the opening shot, the submarines are kind of working their way through the ocean and they pull up onto the beach and you can almost, you can't see the strings, but you can see these little baby submarines that are being pulled up onto the beach. It's, it's something. It's definitely something. Anyway, we've landed on Marinus, which is this vast planet and where we are particularly on this planet is a sea of acid that surrounds this temple, forming a natural barrier. Team TARDIS exits to explore. There are a lot of callbacks to the Daleks in this first episode, which makes sense given that Terry Nation wrote both serials. But again, this appears to be a planet where everything is dead. They're not sure what's going on here. And it's such a contrast 
How we see the team react in that serial, the Daleks, in the Petrified Forest versus in this serial. In this serial, our team is much more cohesive and they are much more excited to be here. They want to explore. They want to go and see the city in the distance. In fact, there is an identical moment towards the beginning of the serial where Ian, Barbara, and the doctor see Marinus, the temple in the distance, just as they saw Scaro, the city in the distance. And in the Daleks episode, the doctor wants to go and explore and Anne and Barbara are very unkeen. They do not want to do this and eventually try to convince the doctor not to do that. But in this episode, Anne and Barbara equally want to go and see what's going on in this temple in the distance. The doctor doesn't have to convince them or to trick them into doing that. They are equally excited. So we see this change from these reluctant travelers to people who want to explore and want to see the universe. And I just really love the contrast in terms of where Anne and Barbara were in the Daleks versus where they are in this serial, because the openings, again, are very similar. Okay, so our team is exploring... And Susan wants to go into the ocean to swim. She's really excited. Fortunately, she throws her shoe into the water accidentally first and discovers that the sea is made of acid. She is now one-footed and Ian lends her his boots so she can go back to the TARDIS safely and gather another pair of shoes. Susan goes off and does that. Meanwhile, Ian, Barbara, and the doctor continue to explore, and they discover these submarines that are pulled up on the bank. Now, inside one of these submarines, they discover the remnants of a person, or at least something that appears to be humanoid. This is our first glimpse of the Vord. The Vords have... The most ridiculous design pretty much in this entire first season. Basically, the costume designer was told to put together a scuba diver outfit with a human lizard costume. And this costume designer clearly had a leather fetish. So we have a scuba diver crossed with a human lizard leather fetish. Picture that in your brain. That is the Vord. The Vords are our principal villains for the serial, though they only appear in the first and last episode because of the structure of this story. Unfortunately, the Vord that they find is dead because there was a puncture in its protective suit, which allowed the acid to get inside and dissolved the organic components of this poor Vord. The three are very interested in what this creature is and how it has survived on this very harsh atmosphere. So they go back to the TARDIS to find Susan and to further investigate this mystery. Unfortunately, they cannot find Susan because Susan has wandered off to the temple. She was curious and decided to do this and ends up getting kidnapped. She has a Susan freakout, a very big freakout because she's pulled inside to this temple against her will and disappears. 
The doctor, Ian and Barbara, follow Susan to the temple. They're searching for her. They split up. This time it's the doctor who says, we'll just split up and go in opposite directions and meet back up here in 10 minutes. Oh. In the Daleks, Ian made the suggestion. In this episode, the doctor makes the suggestion. In either case, come on, guys. You never split up in this, these things. Just don't split up. It's not going to end well. And as it happens, it doesn't end well. The doctor gets kidnapped, pulled into the temple, and Ian and Barbara follow shortly after. In the temple, they meet Arbiton, who is the person who kidnapped them. Arbiton explains to them that this is the original temple control center for the entire planet of Marinus, and he is the last person standing to defend it. What he is defending specifically is a machine. So way back, back in the history of Marinus, the people developed a machine that was originally meant to distribute justice fairly. So it originally was structured to act as judge and jury for the population in order to ensure a just society. But as the technology grew stronger and smarter and more sophisticated, eventually the people constructed a machine that had the capacity to control the population and eliminate all violent and evil urges in the population. So Marinus was a virtual utopia because this machine was controlling the population to prevent any crime. As you might expect, eventually there was some rebellion against this, and the precursors to the current Vord rose up, attempted to take over the machine in order to control the population, because this machine already can control people, so they figured they could, could just control everybody. Because when the Vord rose up, the people had their urges, their violent impulses controlled. They had no way of responding to this threat, to this invasion, because violence was abhorrent to them because the machine prevented them from engaging in violence. So eventually the keepers of the machine dissembled the machine in order to save their world, but they kept five keys that they distributed across the planet, one of which Arbiton has, but the other four are across the planet, that if reassembled would allow the machine to operate again. You see where this is going. So essentially this machine has been out of operation for several centuries. The Vord have been consistently trying to take control of the machine to find the keys in order to control Marinus. And in the meantime, the keepers of the machine, the last of whom is Arbiton, have wanted to reassemble the keys in order to reestablish the utopian society that the machine created. Arbiton knows that it is time to collect these keys and has sent various people out across the planet to gather them, but none of them have ever returned. So he begs the doctor, Ian, Barbara, and Susan to go and gather the other four keys 
so that he can take the machine over and he believes that he can subjugate the Vord and the rest of the planet and restore this utopian society. The Doctor and company say that while they have great sympathy for Arbiton and are sad that he has sent all these people out and they haven't returned, they don't want to get involved. So they go back to their TARDIS. But unfortunately for them, Arbiton puts this big force field around the TARDIS so they cannot get in. And he tells them, if you refuse to go on this quest, you are welcome to make that choice. But that means that you're going to be hanging out on this island in surrounded by an acid sea without food or water, which would be unfortunate. Or you can go on this quest and I'll release your TARDIS. As Ian says, this isn't really much of a choice. So the team agrees to return to Arbiton and to collect these keys. Arbiton gives them these travel devices. They're essentially teleportation devices that go around each of their wrists. And the teleportation devices, when turned, will take them to the general location of each of the four keys and then take them back to Arbiton so that he can restart the machine. Team Tardis agrees to do this. They go off to the first location. And unfortunately, after they leave, the Vords storm into Arbiton's lair, his, his, where the machine is in this temple, and they kill Arbiton, which is essentially the close of this first episode. Okay, let's talk about this. So this episode actually introduces a really fascinating moral dilemma. It isn't a dilemma that we are really going to explore in depth, unfortunately, in this serial. There just isn't going to be enough time. But I do think it's worth talking about. This machine that Arbiton is trying to reassemble really explores this idea of whether it is better to have free will and misuse it for evil, or to live in a world without free will, but in which evil does not exist. This is arguably a question that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the fundamental choice that is given to Eve, you could argue. Eve here is faced with the difference between living in a virtual paradise in which evil does not exist, but we could argue that she does not have full free will, versus transgressing and entering into a world with evil, but a world in which she can make choices, moral choices for good or bad. Now, we could make the argument that if there is a machine out there that can eliminate all evil, that presumably eliminates all suffering from the world, assuming that we are equating things that are evil with things that cause people to suffer, that that would be a good thing. And Arbiton certainly believes that in this serial. He is making the case that this would subjugate the Vord, this would make everybody essentially behave lovely towards each other, and we could return to this beautiful utopian society. On the other hand, is a society really good 
when it is forced to be good, when it does not have a choice in terms of whether or not it can be good. So if this machine makes it impossible for the people of Marinus to do evil, to cause harm, to perpetrate violence, are those people actually good? Or are they merely controlled? That's a really interesting moral question. And again, the serial doesn't really have time to fully explore that. Though, as we'll see, many of these individual episodes are concerned with concepts of free will and our ability to choose. That is a common thread through this serial. But we don't really get a full exploration of this machine and the problem that it creates. We are going to return to this briefly at the end of the serial, but it's not very satisfying. And that's a shame because I think that this is a genuinely fascinating question. I actually thought the first time I saw this serial that the big twist of the serial was going to be that the Vord who appear to be evil, actually were the good guys. They were actually trying to regain freedom for the people of Marinus to destroy this machine once and for all to allow people to make their own choices. I think that would have been a really interesting route for this serial to take. But no, that's not going to be the case. Spoilers! <laughs> the Vord are very, very evil. They're just kind of laughing hyena evil. Um, there's not really any complexity to them. They just want to use the machine to control all of the other people so that they can have power. That's really their thing. There's nothing more going on there. And that's a shame and I think a missed opportunity because it would be interesting to explore this, this conflict of the Vord perhaps not being outright the heroes even, but this idea that both Arbiton and the Vord have equal points and perspectives here in terms of whether or not we should use this machine. Of course, on a small level, the choice that Marinus as a society faces is mirrored by Team Tardis here. They believe that helping Arbiton would probably be the right thing to do, but choose not to do it. They don't believe that they should get involved, but then they are forced into taking up this quest through Arbiton's actions. So is their agreement to go on this quest really a quote unquote good thing if they did not decide to take this quest if it was something that was forced upon them. That is, of course, a mirror of the larger question that the machine poses. Is goodness really good if it is not a choice? Doctor Who will return to these questions in other serials and more fully explore them. Unfortunately, this serial just does not have time to do justice to the moral dilemma that it has dropped upon us through the existence of this machine. And that is unfortunate because this is a really interesting idea and definitely worth exploring in more detail. Okay, so let's talk about the second episode of this quest narrative. 
this is the first location, so Team TARDIS is going after the first key of Marinus. Now, Barbara ends up teleporting slightly ahead of the rest of the team. So she ends up in the location first, and the team follows, discovers her teleportation device on the ground, and it's covered with blood. No! This opens the Velvet Web. Of all the episodes in the serial, this is probably the one that I think had the most promise and is the most interesting to me personally. It is just so cool in terms of the concept. Very rushed because we're getting like a whole serial's worth of um, material into one episode, but still some of the ideas in this episode are just really fantastic. So in the Velvet Web, we open up, we see the blood on Barbara's transport. No one knows where she is. They rush to the nearest building, force their way in, and they discover Barbara, who is perfectly all right. She is sitting in a very luxurious chair. She's dressed to the nines in this beautiful Grecian robe. She has lovely jewelry on and is eating grapes and cheese being served by these beautiful blonde women all dressed to the nines. She invites them in and says, hey, this place is awesome. The set design here we have, it's a very Grecian design. We have a lot of statues and marble. It's beautiful. Team is really excited, a little confused, but excited. So everyone sits, Barbara sends for more food, and she says, this place is just wonderful. They just want to serve and do, like, give you everything. Ian is a little skeptical about the situation and suggests that he doesn't want to eat anything. He wants to be very cautious until he knows what the bill is. A smart question to ask. What is the cost of all of this luxury? Barbara assures him that no, these are just really hospitable people. Here comes the host. His name is Altus. Unfortunately, Altus is one of our main characters throughout this serial, and he is basically a block of wood with very nice legs. His very nice legs are on display throughout the serial, which gets increasingly ridiculous in some of the scenarios he's going to be put in. But yeah, he's wearing a costume that's cut really, really short, so you just see his legs all the time on display. That's really all you need to know about Altos. He's the leg guy. So Altos comes in and he explains that this is a society in which the citizens of the society are denied nothing. They can have whatever they ask for. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. The team is skeptical, understandably. Susan picks up a piece of material and asks if she could have a dress made. And Alta says, yes, it'll be here for you by tomorrow. He turns to the doctor and asks the doctor what he wants. And the doctor says, oh, there's no way you could provide me, young man, with what I want. And Altus says, well, try us. He says, well, if I could have anything, I guess I would want the greatest laboratory in the universe with all of the equipment that I could ever want. Like anything I want. And Altus says, you'll have it by tomorrow. The team is very skeptical now, but they agree that they will go to sleep and wake up and see this lab and come to their own conclusions. 
So in the night, while the team is sleeping, this blonde woman comes in and places these round circles on their foreheads, one by one. Fortunately for the team, Barbara happens to roll over in her sleep, knocking the round thing off of her forehead. She is immediately confronted with an alarm that goes off. It's very loud and crazy, and she passes out. The team wakes up the next morning. They are drinking out of luxurious glasses, eating a beautiful feast for breakfast, ready to go and explore the doctor's new lab. Susan has her new dress. Everyone's really happy. They wake up Barbara, who has been sleeping in, and we suddenly see the room from Barbara's eyes. And it is a very different room. Susan is in rags. Her dress is moldy and disgusting. The food on the table is rotting. The glasses are just mugs. The pillars are rotting away. Everything in the room is not what it appears to be. She tries to explain this to Team TARDIS, but they can't see what she can see. She says over and over again, I need to make you see the truth, but they can't see it. Eventually, Altus comes and tries to take her away, but she escapes into the city, and she is going to try now to convince the team what is actually happening to them. This episode is absolutely barbarous episode. It belongs to her. She sees the truth and she is on this quest to wake everybody else up. In this quest, she ends up finding this young woman. Her name is Sabitha. Sabitha is unfortunately like Altos, also a character that is going to remain with us throughout this serial. She is actually Arbiton's daughter, whom he sent ahead to find a key. And she is basically a block of wood with arms. So Altos is the block of wood with the legs, and Sabina is the block of wood with the arms. That's, that's really all you need to know about her. She does, however, have one of the keys of Marinus around her neck, and explains that this is the thing that she desired more than anything else. Barbara keeps pushing her and bit by bit discovers again that she's Arbiton's daughter, that she was on this quest, and that something has caused her to lose her memories and to essentially become a servant here in this city. We discover quickly that this is a city that is run by these brains. The brains look like like a cross between brains and chicken, like a chicken that you would roast or a turkey that you would roast. They're basically brains with these little sticks, like chicken leg sticks sticking up, and they have eyes on them, and they are the most ridiculous and hysterical design. I, I don't know what they were thinking, but they are really, really hilarious, and it's hard to take them seriously. Essentially, these brains do not have bodies, but they are very intelligent, so they need human bodies to construct their city and to do shit for them. 
So uh, they have constructed this world in which the humans are given whatever they want and slowly conditioned into this slave-like state in which they have given up their memories and their pasts and just become servants for the brains, which is what has happened to Sabitha and to Altos, both of whom were seeking the Marinus keys, and what is quickly happening to Ian, the doctor, and Susan. Ian and the doctor, we see, are in an empty room with a mug sitting in the center of the room, and they are exclaiming over the doctor's laboratory. This laboratory, of course, does not exist, but they are so excited about this non-existent laboratory, and it is hilarious. They're just going on and on and having the science geek out in this empty room. The doctor is holding up this mug and saying, this is like the coolest instrument ever. It's an empty room. They are slowly being hypnotized and losing themselves. So Barbara is piecing all this together, trying to figure out how she's going to save the day because she's Barbara and she's a badass and she always saves the day. Unfortunately, she runs into Ian, who she is trying to convince But Ian is now completely under the brain's control and Ian takes her to the brains to to give her to the brains and the brains order Ian to kill Barbara. Ian proceeds to do this. He starts to strangle Barbara, but she manages to kick him to get away. And then she, in the most hilarious scene ever, basically just destroys the brains by knocking them all over and they die which fortunately for everyone breaks the hypnotic state and allows them to stop serving the brains and to be themselves again and their memories come back and it's all good. Okay, let's talk about this crazy episode. First off, there is far, far, far too much material here for a one 20 minute episode. This should have been a whole serial and it would have been an awesome serial. There are so many great ideas here. One of the things that this particular episode is evoking is the Lotus Eaters from the Odyssey. So if you're familiar with the Odyssey, the Island of the Lotus Eaters is an episode in that story in which Odysseus and his crew land on an island. And on this island, there's this plant called the Lotus People eat it and it makes them completely relaxed, completely happy, and they never want to leave the island because they're just in this state of complete bliss. There's a similar allure here. This is this perfect society. Everything appears to be utterly pleasant in every way and no one wants to leave and people get into this trap of contentment. The extra layer here is that this contentment is absolutely false. It is done completely through hypnotic suggestion. It is not real. So all of this loveliness that the people of the city see does not exist. They are being trapped by something that is not in fact real. And I think that adds a really fascinating layer to this serial and to this question of pleasure and whether or not we should seek pleasure at the cost of being able to achieve our purpose, which is of course the dilemma for the Lotus Eaters. People are very happy on the island of the Lotus Eaters, but it makes you forget 
what it is that you really want, which in the case of Odysseus and his companions was to get home to their home and to their loved ones. But they forgot about that because they were just so happy and mindless on this island. Similarly, this velvet web, this spider trap, has all of the people seeking the keys of Marinus forget about their quest and just enjoy the city. But again, their pleasure is not real. It is an illusion created by these brains for another purpose. So for me, the other story that this episode evokes is Plato's allegory of the cave. This serial very much is about the idea of reality versus a pretty lie. So in Plato's allegory, Plato imagines that all of us in the world, all of us, are equivalent to prisoners trapped in a cave. We are all bound so we can only face the wall of the cave. There's a fire behind us and there are shadows being projected onto the wall of the cave. And we believe that those shadows are reality. That is all that is real because that is all we have ever known is those shadows. But in fact, those shadows are being produced by these puppeteers who are holding up objects in front of the fire so that they cast a shadow on the wall. And that is what we think is reality, just these shadows on the wall. Of course, if you were to free a prisoner from their bounds and they could escape, they would realize that these shadows are just reflections of these objects. And then they would realize if you pulled them out of the cave, that the object that was just a representation of a tree is not, in fact, a real tree. They would realize that there is a whole reality beyond their ability to comprehend when they were just a prisoner looking at the shadows on the wall. And this serial has a lot of similar messages to Plato's allegory, Barbara being the person who escapes from the cave. Because one of the things that Plato suggests in the allegory is that once you see the truth, you cannot go back. It is not possible for you to look at those shadows and mistake them from, for reality once you have been outside and seen the real world. Likewise, the brains tell us that Barbara is now beyond their control because she has seen the world as it is, because she has seen through the illusion that they have created, they would never be able to fool her. They cannot reprogram her. She has seen through the lie and she is now beyond their control forever. All that they can do is kill her, is remove her from the equation. And just as Plato suggests that the purpose or the moral obligation that you get when you see reality, when you see the truth, is to return and to bring that truth to others, Barbara, of course, feels compelled that she has to come back and share her truth with Ian, Barbara, and the doctor, that she has to release them from their imprisonment, that she has to get Sabitha out of this and Altos out of this, that she needs to 
open their eyes up to the real world and to release them from their servitude that is being imposed upon them through this false reality. Again, these are really big and interesting concepts that deserved a whole serial and we just have them all packed in here. I think it would have been really cool to have a lengthy period of time in which Barbara is frantically trying to find a way to bring this truth back. And we're seeing Ian and Susan and the doctor fall further and further into their illusions. Because this episode has to pack this all in in such a short amount of time, essentially the process of becoming enslaved to the brains requires you to be put under and have the little circular things put into your brain twice. And I guess that's it. At that point, you are you are under their control. I think it would be much more interesting if the means of becoming under this control is to give up more and more of your free will in order to have this pleasure that they are giving you, this illusion of these perfect things that you've ever always wanted, the dress that you've always wanted, the laboratory that you've always wanted, all the food that you've always wanted. And that that is the means of them keeping the control is this illusion. And you would do anything to have that illusion until it replaces reality. It replaces your personality. It replaces all these things. And I definitely think that that's what's happening on a metaphorical level in this episode. But because it's so rushed, we don't get the full effect of that. It would have been really fun to see the doctor, Susan, and Ian really falling into this temptation and seeing them gradually break down under the force of being given anything that they've ever wanted. While this serial frames these questions around free will in different ways, it is still engaging in these questions on each of these, in each of these episodes. So our overall narrative again, is this idea of a machine that can control the population to eliminate all evil. So are we willing to give up our free will to eliminate suffering, to eliminate evil? In this episode, it's distilled down to this idea of pleasure. Are we willing to live in a world of absolute pleasure, even if it's a false world, in return for losing a sense of who we are, losing our ability to pursue things, and essentially becoming servants to something outside of ourselves. So those are not quite the same questions, but they are related. They are asking us what we value, whether it requires us to have free will, whether it requires us to be able to make decisions in order to have purpose. If a machine decides what is right and wrong and eliminates your ability to choose otherwise, do you still have purpose? Can you still be good? Certainly in the Velvet Web, it's highly suggested that in giving in to pleasure and to simply pursuing pleasure, you are giving up some essence of who you are in return for, for just existing mindlessly. Some really fascinating and great questions here. All right. 
Let's talk about the third episode of the serial, The Screaming Jungle. I would say The Screaming Jungle and The Snows of Terror, which is the fourth episode, are probably the least interesting for me, but I will talk briefly about both. The next episode, The Screaming Jungle, splits our group twice. The doctor has elected to go ahead two turns on his transport machine. Hence, he is actually not in the next two episodes at all. They're going to meet up with him in the penultimate episode when they're looking for the final key. Ian, Barbara, Susan, Altos, and Sabitha all then go to the next location, but they split the group again when Barbara unexpectedly finds a false key in an idol because they are in this jungle and it's very Indiana Jones. There happens to be this scary looking idol that she takes the key from and ends up inside a temple They do not know where the real key is, and they do not know if Barbara is still at this location or if she decided to go ahead to the next location because they decided if anyone got in trouble that they would just transport out. So Ian makes the call to send Susan, Altos, and Sabitha ahead to the next location to make sure that Barbara's all right if she transported forward, and he remains in the Screaming Jungle to make sure that Barbara's okay if she remained in this location and to find the key. Okay, so this second split of the group has always really bothered me because the doctor has just entrusted Ian and Barbara with Susan's safety. And then they turn around and they hand Susan off to Altos and Sabitha, who say that they're going to be good guardians for Susan and keep her safe. But we have zero evidence to that effect. Both Altos and Sabitha were pretty easily overpowered by the brains in the last episode. And surprise, surprise, they do not prove to be very good guardians for Susan and end up getting her into a lot of trouble. So, yeah... I don't really approve of this move. It has always bothered me. It, I understand that Ian wants to get Susan away from the jungle because he is worried about her. But Altos and Sabitha are pieces of wood in this serial and they are not capable of actually keeping Susan safe. Susan is more likely to keep them safe. And yes, it just seems very neglectful on Ian's part. However... Susan, Sabitha, and Altos are now forward, and we aren't going to see them until the next episode. This is an Anne and Barbara episode. Ian makes his way into the temple. Barbara is already there, of course. She saves him from a booby trap. The booby traps in the temple are absolutely ridiculous. They are so silly and so cheap and kind of hilarious. But the two of them are dodging all these booby traps in the temple before they find the keeper of the temple, convince this keeper there from Arbiton searching for the key. He gives them some clues to the location of this second key they're looking for before he passes away. 
The rest of the episode, they search for the key in this big library and also discover more about the planet. When night falls, they start to hear the screaming of the jungle, which is in fact the jungle expanding rapidly, attacking the temple as it grows and grows at an accelerated rate. It's as if the plants have come alive and are attacking them, happening style here. The reason that this is happening is because the people of Marinus in this particular region were experimenting with nature and the natural processes and seeing if they could speed that up. Unfortunately, they were extremely successful and accelerated the growth rate of the jungle so much that now it is essentially destroying the entirety of the research facility and all the people in it. Ian and Barbara are the last to experience this. Fortunately, they find the key before the jungle destroys them and they transport to the next location. Okay, so this particular episode is exploring an interesting philosophical conundrum. This idea of how far we should mess with nature. A lot of inspiration here from writers like H.G. Wells and the early sci-fi writers. Um, Frankenstein comes to mind too here. The mad scientists who were experimenting with nature and that experimentation turned against them. Doctor Who will certainly do this again. I'm thinking particularly in New Who of the Lazarus episode where we see a man experiment with de-aging and that comes to some unfortunate results for him. But yes, this is the first time we've really seen this theme in classic Who and it is interesting. It's worth exploring. It also ties into some of the larger issues of the serial here because, again, this is about power, how much power we have, and the consequences of perhaps experimenting without considering the ethical implications or the consequences of your actions. So just as the primary machine of Marinus ends up being something that controls the people and we could argue may or may not be a good thing that technology, regardless of whether it's a good thing, the people of Marinus did not fully think through before they put it into effect. Similar thing happening here. The scientists who were experimenting with the jungle and nature and trying to see how far they could speed things up didn't consider the effects of that and the fact that nature might be more powerful than they themselves are. So there's a hubris theme going on here. But again, we do not have enough time to explore this theme in depth because we have to get Susan and company off in a new direction. We have to deal with booby traps. We have to deal with this dying keeper and we have to do it all in 20 minutes. So the theme is introduced. These ideas are introduced, but we don't really get to fully explore them. Next episode, I would say is the least connected to the serial overall. This is the snows of terror. 
Ian and Barbara transport ahead to the next location, but they've been some time in the jungle, so they don't know where Susan, Altos, and Sabitha are. Essentially, in this episode, they find themselves in a vast frozen landscape. They're freezing to death, and they are saved by Mountain Man. We'll just call him Mountain Man. Mountain Man turns out to be not so great a guy. He just kind of wants to keep Barbara in his little cabin, tries to kill Ian by sending him out into the wilderness with meat, and the wolves are coming to attack him. Ian is looking for Altos, who he knows is trying to go to town, and Mountain Man tells him that that Altos is probably not going to make it. He does find Altos. They return to the cabin, save Barbara, and all three of them force Mountain Man to take them to Susan and Sabitha, who are in these ice caves. The ice cave location is pretty cool. They find... The girls, everyone reunites and they go on an adventure through the ice caves to find the key that is hidden there. There are some knights, zombie knights in the cave that are frozen. They have to melt this big vast pool to get the key because the key is like in this frozen pool. They end up defreezing the knights who attack them. It's an interesting image. <laughs> Very weird and out of nowhere but yes they have to battle these zombie knight things get the key eventually go back to mountain man to get their transports and the zombie knights kill mountain man it's pretty brutal but mountain man is not a good guy so you know yeah he gets stabbed to death by the zombie knights this one is just all over the place it's it's fun it's a fun adventure. It reminds me a little bit of the cave adventure from the Daleks. Again, Terry Nation clearly has certain things that he returns to as a writer. And he's very good at these claustrophobic scenarios, having to figure out how to navigate a space. There is a similar scene in this episode to the scene in the Daleks where they have to cross this very large drop. And in the Daleks, they jump it. In this one, Mountain Man has cut the bridge that went across it, so they have to construct a different bridge. So those are those are interesting things, kind of figuring out how to navigate the landscape. And again, the imagery of the ice and the nights, also very interesting. There isn't really a deeper philosophical question at root in this particular episode, and it feels weird because... Every other episode does have that. So it kind of feels like the odd one out. I suppose you could say that we are seeing what happens in absence of society. The last serial was a academic or a scientific society. Um, and yes, they we see what happens in that kind of world where we're just privileging finding knowledge over everything else. We have seen in the previous, in the Velvet Web, a very highly controlled society. We're about to go to a pretty civilized, quote unquote, advanced society. And we're seeing how those social structures can lead to, quote unquote, evil. In this case, we're looking at what happens when there are no social structures and Mountain Man is just hanging out doing whatever he wants because he's the most powerful person in the region and there's really no one to stop him. So I guess you could stretch and make a case that that's the connection here, but there isn't really a 
philosophical question that's being explored here in the same way as the others. I would also note that having lived in Alaska, <laughs> this episode really frustrates me because Mountain Man gives them these furs to cover themselves, but these furs are inadequate. <laughs> to protect them from the cold in any way, particularly Altos, whose legs are completely bare, and Sabitha, whose arms are completely bare. So they have furs, but they don't cover their bare legs or their bare arms. And I'm just saying, if it is as cold as the cereal is trying to convince us it is, Sabitha would not have arms anymore. At the very least, would not have fingers. And and Altos, yeah, he, his toes would be gone to frostbite. So Sabitha and Altos basically have magical limbs that do not freeze. And it just drives me insane when you're seeing them walking through the snow. And, and, he, and his legs are bare. And her arms are bare in these ice caves. And it's like, no, no. The two of you would be suffering from frostbite. You, you would probably lose an arm and a leg. Possibly both. I'm just saying. It, it, it bugs me. Maybe that is the philosophical issue of the Snows of Terror is, is how it is that Sabitha and Altos manage to keep their limbs in this frozen tundra. Because they're blocks of wood? Possibly because they're blocks of wood. Yes. So that's a brief recap. Some thoughts on these two middle episodes. Okay, let's talk the second to last, the penultimate episode of this serial, Sentence of Death. So if the last episode was a adventure, this episode is a murder mystery slash courtroom drama with some philosophical questions and overtones thrown in just for fun. Essentially, this episode opens with Ian, who has come into what appears to be a museum. He sees a man on the floor who is apparently dead, tries to help him, kneels down, stands up, and sees the key of Marinus, the key that he's looking for, and it's in this case... And then he is promptly knocked over the head by a club, by this guy with a black gloved hand. He collapses, and the black gloved man goes and takes the key, setting off an alarm. So, of course, when Ian comes to, he is being questioned by the peacekeepers of this big city, who tell him that he is now under suspicion of murder because the black-gloved hand man put the club that killed this other man into Ian's hand, so it appeared as if he had committed the murder. The key of Varanus has also gone missing, and the guards have no idea how it could have gotten out of this locked room. They assume that Ian must have had an accomplice, and they try to get him to reveal his accomplice, but he, of course, doesn't know what the heck is going on because he did not commit this crime. So now Ian is on trial for murder, and he discovers that in this society, one is guilty until proven innocent. 
He's very nervous, knows he needs someone to defend him. And out from the shadows comes the doctor who says, I shall be that man who shall defend you, Chesterton, my boy. And this is the doctor returning after being gone for two episodes. So it's very exciting to see him. And he is, of course, going to defend Ian in this courtroom drama. I love how far Ian and the doctor's relationship has come. Ian completely trusts that the doctor is going to help him here. And the doctor is fully committed to helping Ian and to making sure that he is not put in jail for murder. But more importantly, at no point in this serial, um, in this episode, does the doctor question whether Ian committed this crime, which I do think in an earlier part of this season, the doctor would have considered. He knows that Ian would never do such a thing. So Ian is taken away. The doctor meets with the rest of the team and he reveals he's been in the city for a while. And the man who was killed was Ephraim, who is one of the people sent to find the keys of Marinus. And unfortunately, of course, he is now dead, but he and the doctor had conspired to take the key. And of course, who the black gloved man must have interrupted this process. So the doctor sends Altos, the legs, and Sabitha, the arms, to the local library to essentially get some information about past cases and how um, murderers or suspected murderers got off. So they're off doing research. And meanwhile, he, Barbara, and Susan begin to interview everyone who was on the scene for the crime. The doctor quickly discovers where he believes the key is located. He does not reveal this to us, but if you're paying attention, you know, it's, it's in the club. It's in the murder weapon. It's so obvious that the key is hidden in the murder weapon. It's the only thing that's not checked. Our attention is drawn back to this weapon over and over again. So obviously the key is in that weapon. But the doctor tells us that to reveal where the key is at this point would not help Ian, which is true because Ian could have hidden it there as well. Barbara and Susan are sent to interview one of the peacekeeper's wives. Her name is Carla. She appears very mild-mannered, tells them that they, she doesn't know anything more than her husband can say. Her husband comes storming in, is very angry at Susan and Barbara for interviewing his wife, and they leave. And then we hear the husband in contact with the man with the black gloves, who is obviously the man who is leading this trial as the prosecution. Yes, it's it's pretty clear who's who in this. It's not really it's not really a mystery. I'm just saying there is there is a twist. There is a twist coming, but but we know who the murderer is. It's clearly the guy who was leading the prosecution. He has the black gloves. We see it, and we know that his accomplice is this guard who you know initially discovered. Ian on the scene. Okay, so the trial starts. The doctor is putting forth all of this evidence to exonerate Ian. He eventually tricks the guard into revealing that he was involved, and the guard is immediately killed. This is a outrage. Everyone is up in arms. They don't know what's going on. Who killed the guard? Because it had to be someone nearby, but we don't know who it is. 
and the trial is in an uproar, but even with the reveal that this guard was involved, the uh, people who gets to judge Ian, these three gentlemen in ridiculous outfits, they all say, well, we knew that Ian must have had an accomplice, so he was still the murderer and this guard was the accomplice and Ian is sent to be executed. Okay, so at some point in all of this excitement, Susan goes missing and Barbara gets a really threatening phone call, essentially saying that if they reveal the location of the key inside the weapon, which again, at this point, we don't know, the doctor knows this and has not revealed it, that Susan will be killed. And we hear Susan very scared on the other end of this phone. Barbara decides she's not going to reveal that Susan has been kidnapped to the doctor because she wants the doctor to be able to focus on Ian, who is now watching the execution time clock tick away. And she and Altos and Sabitha go to find Susan. So this actually takes us into the next episode. The last episode of this serial is split towards the resolution of this storyline, Sentence of Death, and the resolution of the entire serial. Again, everything is a little rushed. But yes, Barbara, alongside the legs and the arms, goes to search for Susan. The only place she can think to go is to see Carla, the wife of the guard who was involved in this plot. And of course, surprise, surprise, Carla is in fact the mastermind. She is engaged directly with the black gloved guy and they're going to run off together. She killed her own husband. She is the one who has kidnapped Susan. People are a little slow in this serial. I feel like you as the audience figure out what's going on a lot faster than the characters, Ian and Barbara in particular, some of their their reactions are a little slow. In this instance, Carla clearly re- reveals that she knows that Susan called the team, which she could not have known unless she was the kidnapper. And Barbara doesn't realize this immediately, but does realize it later and goes back to rescue Susan. So anyway, there's there's a lot of... There's some good ideas in this serial. I think the reveal of Carla is particularly satisfying because throughout the serial, people have referred to her as the meek little wife and she gets hysterical when her husband died. And I think that this reveal that no, she's actually this cold calculative villain. And just for the record, the best side character in this entire serial, like hands down. So much more interesting than Sabitha or Altos or Black Hand Glove Guy or Mountain Man. Like Carla, Carla rules. I'm just saying she's she's a delightful villain. So that reveal is really interesting and I like it. Okay, so eventually Carla is revealed as the villain she is because Susan's released and says that she was kidnapped, you know. Unfortunately... This still does not help Ian because Carla has said that she was in conspiring with Ian, that Ian was her co-conspirator. So she did not turn on Black Glove the man. But the doctor conceives of a plot to reveal the true criminal. He knows that Black Glove the man is going to want the key. They want this key because they want to sell it. That's, that's their motivation here. It's just pure greed. 
the man is coming to retrieve the key and the doctor essentially sets up an ambush when he comes for the club to get the key. They discover Black Glove Man is in fact the prosecutor. He reveals himself to be the murderer and that gets Ian off the hook. And they have all four keys of Marinus. The murder mystery, as I said, it's a lot of fun. Again, it could be an entire serial, so it's a lot packed into a very short amount of time. It does have an interesting conundrum here with reversing our concept of justice and suggesting that we should assume that someone is guilty, that they have to prove their innocence. And I do think that there's some reference back to these overarching questions about controlling evil, about trying to put out crime and free will here, a system like this makes sense to have developed from a society that used to be controlled by a machine which dictated their actions and prevented them from doing wrong. It makes sense that from that social construct in which a machine is making decisions for you, what would evolve from that is a desire to police injustice at the expense of the innocent. So it is better to stamp out crime and take the innocent with that potential control over the criminal rather than, as we do in our justice system, assume innocence, think that it is a worse thing to execute an innocent man than to let a guilty man go free. A society that relied on this machine, you could see them developing the alternative philosophy, that it is better for an innocent man to die than for a guilty man to go free. That seems intuitive to come from a society that is privileging stamping out evil over making moral choices for themselves. So I do think that that makes sense within the context of the serial. Again, we do not have a lot of time to explore these ideas because they're just so fast. So Sabitha and Altos go ahead first while the doctor and Susan and Barbara are resolving the issue in the city. So they have already gone back with the majority of the keys except for the last one, which the team has just retrieved. So we've known this entire serial that, of course, Arbiton is dead and the Vords have taken over the original temple of Marinus. This is when poor dear Sabitha and Altos discover this reality. They return to the temple and are immediately captured. The Vords are trying to get Sabitha and Altos to reveal the location of the final key because they've taken the other three from them. And obviously they have the fourth key from Arbiton, who they've killed. So the only per key that they still need is the one that Team Tardis has in the city because Team Tardis has not come forward yet. Sabitha, credit to her in spite of her, her block of woodness, she says, no, I will not tell you this. You can do whatever you want. She tries to pass dear Altos off as her servant. That doesn't work. The uh, Vord's threaten him, threaten to kill him. She still refuses to give out the location of the final key. And surprise, surprise, did you know that Sabitha and Altos were in love? 
I didn't know that Sabitha and Altos were in love. I got nothing from them there. I guess it's just, he's attractive, she's attractive. Of course they're in love. Apparently the boards think that this is obvious and try to use this against the two of them. I, I don't know. It just comes out of nowhere. I think in a better serial with more time, maybe these two characters could have been developed and maybe something of this relationship could have been made. But this is the moment where Altos goes from being a boring character to one that I kind of actively dislike because the Vords threaten Altos with Sabitha's life. And Sabitha says, a man who truly loved me would never reveal the locations of the keys, would never betray me, is how she puts it. They threaten Sabitha and Altos immediately is like, oh, the doctor has the key. And I'm just like, Man, she she just said, the way that you show me love is not to betray the secret because I'm willing to die for that. And if you respect me, you respect the fact that I care about this even more than my own life. But no, Altos can't do that. He, he, his instincts as the man override that and he has to protect her as the weak woman. And yeah, this is a trope that really bugs me. <laughs> And maybe because I don't have any particular fondness for my, these characters, they it just irks me. The scene really irks me. Altos, you did wrong. You should have stuck by Sabitha and not betrayed her in this instance. I actually think that Doctor Who has one of the best subversions of this trope ever in New Who. And this involves the Doctor and Rose in the Satan's Pit episode, which if you're familiar with that, you you know what I'm talking about. But the Doctor is presented with this choice and sees it as an act of love to essentially put Rose in danger, to potentially give up her life for the, the greater cause here because he knows that that is what she would want. And that is the more respectful thing. We see that in reverse all the time with a woman respecting that a man is willing to die or to give up something really drastic for their beliefs. But often when it's reversed and we see it put on a woman, it's like, no, we have to protect the woman at all costs. And it's just something that irks me. You should have respected Sabitha here, just as the doctor in New Who respects Rose enough to know that she would be on board with giving up her life for the greater good. Sabitha is on board with that. End rant. Really bugs me in this serial. <laughs> um, maybe it would bug me less too if their relationship was more defined. But yeah, they're they're in love. They're in love, guys. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but apparently they're in love. So now the wards know that the doctor and company have the last key. They throw Sabitha and... Altos into a cell, they're imprisoned, and they wait for Team Tardis to come, which of course they do. At this point, the Doctor figures out that there is something going on. They can tell that the Vord have taken over, so they're proceeding with caution. They split up, and the Doctor deliberately gives Ian the key for safekeeping. I really like this because, again, it's sort of a call back to the Daleks where the doctor gives Ian the fluid link and Ian loses it inadvertently. And that's a very big conflict in that 
in that particular serial. And here the doctor is again, willingly trusting Ian and knows that Ian is going to keep the key safe and to make the right decisions. And I just, I like that progression that this is something to me that speaks to how their relationship has grown and their friendship has grown. So the doctor and Barbara go off and discover Altos and Sabitha. So their their quest here is to free them. Meanwhile, Ian and Susan find the Vords. But these Vords are very clever, particularly the leader of the Vords. And the leader of the Vords has dressed like Arbiton in his white robes and covered up that leather fetishy costume with these white robes. It's very... Little Red Riding Hood, the big bad wolf in grandmother's clothing, pretends to be Arbiton, asks for the key, says that he has this deadly illness and they can't come any closer. Ian gives him the key, but surprise, surprise, Ian is a smart guy. He realizes something's up, so he gives the false Arbiton the false key, the key that they found in the screaming jungle before discovering the real key. So now the Vords have what they think is all five keys. The team reunites. So we have all six of our heroes, quote unquote, together again. And Sabitha tells them that if the Vords use the false key, the machine is basically just going to blow up. So Team Tardis plus Altos and Sabitha exit the temple real quick. And sure enough, the Vords use the false key. The machine self-destructs and takes the temple with it. Everyone escapes, the temple collapses, the Vords go down like the villains they are in a very uncomplicated way. At the doors of the TARDIS, Barbara and Ian are kind of sad to say goodbye to Sabitha and Altos for some reason. I don't know. Uh, I, I won't miss them. Won't miss Sabitha and Altos at all. But Barbara's sad to part with them. The doctor gives them some advice on his way out. He tells Sabitha that her father's legacy can live on, but it is not wise to put one's trust in a machine as Marinus has done. That ultimately machines can make laws, but they are not capable of handing out true justice. Hence, the people of Marinus will have to find another way going forward to be moral and to be good. And this is the very quick condemnation of our original premise here about this machine that can control the population. It's, again, it's a little quick, but it is there. The doctor coming down on the side of, no, this machine was a bad thing. Maybe it was necessary at one point in your planet's history, but now you must go forward and find a new way to to bring your society towards a better place. Sabitha and Alto seem to take this to heart. They are going to go off and try to reform their planet starting with the city we have just left in the sentence of death. They're going to go there and presumably try to convince those people that perhaps their justice system is backwards. Perhaps we should presume that someone is innocent until proven guilty. 
and that is the keys of Marinus. All right, that's a lot. The resolution of this entire arc, it's a little anticlimactic. I would say that not very much is done with the Vords here. Again, they're just kind of the cackling villains that want power, and that's a shame because the questions that the serial is proposing could have used a more nuanced villain. And yeah, there's some cleverness with the false key and stuff, but everything just has to wrap up. It has to wrap up. We do not have time to deal with all these ideas. So we're getting to the end. Let's talk about this in terms of how it functions overall. My last thoughts about the serial as a whole. Okay. So first off, this is a really ambitious idea that the show is trying to tackle. Having a quest narrative in which we are on one planet, but we get to see a diversity of places on that planet. That's really fascinating. And I do like that this serial acknowledges that a planet is not one cohesive culture, that there are different places with different social dynamics and different landscapes and different rules on this planet, just as there are on Earth. There is a complexity to Marinus as a place that we do not I think ever get in any other serial of Doctor Who. And that in of itself is really admirable. Again, I think the quest narrative itself is also very ambitious and interesting as a narrative device that we are devoting a lengthier story to finding all these objects, which is an easy structure in which to have all these little mini adventures. However, doing it in one serial is just chaotic. It doesn't allow for enough space for us to really explore these ideas at length. And in fact, Doctor Who learns from this because this serial is essentially remade in the fourth Doctor era as an entire season. We have the keys of time when we get to the fourth doctor. And the Keys of Time has the same basic setup as the Keys of Marinus. We have a being that charges the doctor and his companion to retrieve all of these keys, they're literally keys, in order to prevent someone else from using them for bad things. The difference is that is an entire season and each of these little 20 minute episodes the equivalent in the Keys of Time season is an entire serial. So you really get to fully tell all these different stories while having this larger overarching plot. So in the sense that this particular serial ends up leading to one of the more interesting seasons of Doctor Who later down the line, it does have this lasting legacy that is worth acknowledging. I would also say that within the context of this serial, as rushed as it is, as much as it doesn't really fully work as a serial because there's just too much going on, there are some really fascinating ideas. 
And even if they're not fully explored, the fact that we can raise these kind of questions in Doctor Who, a show that is at this point in its history still primarily pointed at young at children and families, I think that there's something to be said about that. I think that Terry Nation is consistently, as a writer, both in the Daleks and in this serial, very ambitious in the types of ideas that he wants to explore. And that is very fascinating and worth watching his serials for. So no, The Keys of Marinus is not a serial that I would say is successful in achieving its vision. But the vision itself is really interesting. It is a serial that, rushed as it is, is easy to sit through. The bad things are enjoyably bad because they're kind of over the top. And the ideas that are being explored will make you think, even if they're a little surface. So yeah, if you're in the mood for a bit of a popcorn mess, very 1960s, very crazy, a bit silly sometimes, that, you know, occasionally will make you think about things, Keys of Marinus is worth checking out. It is a shame, however, and perhaps to this serial's detriment, that it sits between Marco Polo and what we will be exploring next time, the Aztecs. Because the Aztecs is considered one of the greatest serials of all of Classic Who and all of the First Doctor's time on the show. Hence, next week, we're going to strap in to an extremely well-written historical drama that does dive deep into the issues it wants to explore, and I am so excited to talk about this one. So I'm going to sign off on the keys of Marinus, and go off and watch the Aztecs. This has been Through the Vortex, a companion to classic Doctor Who.